Good morning on this Resurrection Sunday, April 21st, 2019. If you're a regular with us here at Shepherd's Gate, you know we're spending the year going through the book of Isaiah, but this morning will be one of the few Sundays we're taking off. This sermon is about the resurrection, although we'll be approaching it from a somewhat oblique angle. The sermon is titled, If I Could Talk with Jordan Peterson About the Resurrection. Now, of course, I am Chris Stewart. Most of you know who I am, but how many of you know who Jordan Peterson is? Oh, no. oh, there we go, there we go. Yeah, not as many as I'd like, but let me bring the rest of you up to speed quickly. Jordan Peterson is a Canadian clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He came to prominence in September 2016 when he released a YouTube video declaring his refusal to comply with Bill C-16, which amended the Canadian Human Rights Act and Criminal Code to include gender identity and expression, the net effect being it became a crime to address anyone by anything other than their preferred pronoun. Upon his refusal to comply with government-mandated speech, as the saying goes, the fecal matter hit the rotary impeller. Or or as it's phrased in Canada, the fecal matter hit the rotary impeller, eh? In the subsequent turbulence, he has risen to become an international icon, praised by people who believe in truth, reason, and personal responsibility, and vilified by postmodernist ideologues and their lackeys in the media. I'm thinking you won't have any trouble figuring out which side of the equation I come down on. Since then, he has written an international bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos, and toured the world, lecturing to packed-out auditoriums, a blurb on the book here from the New York Times, which does not happen to be the first place I'd go for accurate news, but the New York Times identifies him as the most influential public intellectual in the Western world right now, and I think that's an accurate statement. One of the signature points in this process was an interview with British journalist Kathy Newman, January 2018. The video of that interview posted on YouTube has 15 million views. Watching it was my introduction to him. He's appeared four times on the Joe Rogan podcast, each of those videos having about 5 million views. He's produced a 13-part lecture series on the psychological significance of the biblical stories in Genesis. The first lecture, Introduction to the Idea of God, has about 4 million views. Okay, so he's a cultural phenomenon. Why would I like to talk with him about the resurrection? Why am I taking our precious time this Easter morning to talk about somebody who may well not be a Christian? may not believe in the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus. The reason is, he seems to understand everything except that. And what I'd love to do is dialogue with him about how that doesn't work, it won't fly, you can't disentangle the various truths of Christianity from the foundational truth of the resurrection. And it seems to me that's what he's doing. He has a masterful grasp of truths that revolve around the resurrection, but does not appear to understand they don't matter without the resurrection. 
these beautiful, glorious, life-affirming truths all depend on the resurrection. This sermon is going to be on the philosophical side. We're going to be talking about how people think. And some of you go, I don't care how people think. If you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you're not a Christian. Case closed. Move on. Fair enough. I agree with the proposition. If you do not believe Jesus rose from the dead, you are not a Christian. And I haven't arrived at that through subtle philosophical reasoning. It's the plain, consistent statement of the New Testament, Romans 1, 4, 10, 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, etc. However, we should take note of the fact that Jordan Peterson himself and millions of others are attracted to the truths of Christianity while finding this foundational truth to be a stumbling block. When you have the privilege of dialoguing with somebody about the gospel, you don't just blurt out, you've got to believe Jesus rose from the dead. You talk about meaning, purpose, hope, goodness, beauty, the effect of the truths of Christianity on their life, their marriage, their relationships. You have come to understand that all of that goodness, all of those truths, depend on the resurrection. But you didn't start there. You started at whatever point of need or desire you were at and have come to understand and believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he rose from the dead. So it seems to me Jordan Peterson sees the need and has the desire but still stops short of believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he rose from the dead, rather like that scribe to whom Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God, Mark twelve thirty four. However, the fact that he's able to talk about the deep issues of life in a way millions of people find significant and helpful is why I pay attention to him and learn from him and why I'd love the dialogue with him about the resurrection. I think a simple way to state his perspective would be to say that he believes Christianity is philosophically true, metaphysically true, archetypically true, just not literally true, not historically true, and he doesn't think it matters that it's not literally true. He thinks the philosophical, metaphysical, archetypical truth retains its weight even in the absence of literal truth. That is where I disagree with him, and that's why I'd like to talk with him about the resurrection. Now, I tried to get him here, but it, he's, he's heavily booked, and we just weren't able to work it out. He sends his best, but I'll, ju I'll just have to do my best to represent him fairly and accurately. You could say I'll be philosophically, metaphysically, archetypically talking with him, just not literally talking with him. A couple of more things before we dive in. Personally, I have always been of a philosophic bent. In college, philosophy was my practical, though not technical, minor. I ended up a few credits short. But the way Jordan Peterson talks is home cooking to me. I can just lay back and soak it all in. However, if you're not used to it, if you just drop in on a conversation, you may feel completely lost. That is not because you have to be exceptionally intelligent to follow him. Normal people, average people, are following him just fine 
but he does take a little getting used to. The way he talks, it's sort of like you're hearing him think. And there's a lot of content, a lot of back and forth in his thoughts and words, and we're not used to that much content. We would be better off if we were, but we're not. So all this is to say, when you first hear him, it may sound like he's blowing smoke and waving mirrors, churning out abstractions and qualifications to avoid speaking plainly. Later on, we'll see a clip where he's asked about the resurrection, if he believes in the resurrection, and he'll say, I need about three more years to think about it. And that may strike you as transparently evasive. Tomb's either empty or it's not. Either believe or you don't. What is there to seek on a three-year quest of understanding? Well, I assure you, he's not being evasive, though I understand it sounds that way. It's his journey. It's where he's coming from. He's a remarkable combination of high-level abstraction with profound insight, and one could almost say an obsession with truthfulness. He's not hiding something he doesn't want you to find out. He's describing the process he's in. Now, that process is going somewhere, amen, but it is a process, and right now he is going through it. To shed some light on his experience, we'll turn to the story of someone else with a remarkably similar journey, but this is someone you're probably already comfortable with, C.S. Lewis. Lewis's own journey was from childhood faith to strict atheism to reluctant theism and then finally to Christianity. Peterson's journey parallels his in the combination of high-level abstraction with profound insight, in intense academic training leading to an academic career, in the embrace of theism, that is, belief in God, which is an absolutely essential but completely distinct step from embracing Christianity, and in the profound appreciation for what, at this point, we will call myth. M-Y-T-H, myth. But we need to define that term. We're talking myth, not in the cartoon sense of Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox, but in the profound sense of cultural story conveying truth. Not literal historical truth, but profound truth about the human condition. Lewis loved actual myths, particularly Norse mythology. Peterson's appreciation comes from a different direction but ends up at the same point. He's a modern psychologist, so his trajectory is through Carl Jung's theory of archetypes. Quoting Wikipedia, Jung understood archetypes as universal archaic patterns and images that derive from the collective unconscious and are the psychic counterpart of instinct, unquote. Now, I'm not going to begin to unpack that. We're going to keep it short and sweet. All I'm saying is both Lewis and Peterson have a profound appreciation for, we could almost say reverence for, myth. And permit me to talk about them in the same tense because it makes it a lot easier. They both think largely, we could say primarily, in terms of myth. Consequently, they're both comfortable thinking of things as being metaphorically or symbolically true without them being literally true. So, they would approach the Gospels assuming they're not literally true. They didn't read them and go, oh, that sounded fake. 
Their worldview, their first principles told them they weren't literally true, but just another example, though perhaps the best, of mythic truth, marvelous story of love, sacrifice, death, and resurrection that speaks so powerfully to the human condition. Now, most of us don't think this way. So we don't have to take this step. But they do. They have to grapple with the proposition that something which is obviously, perfectly, mythically true might, unlike every other myth, might actually be literally true. See, most of us, quote, quote, normal people, encounter the story in a more straightforward way. And we simply believe it or not. But because of the things they've soaked in and the worlds they've inhabited, the mythic truth of the story dominates their perception, and then they have to sort of back in to what, for them, is a surprising question of whether it might be literally true. C.S. Lewis got around that corner September 19, 1931, when he invited two friends over for dinner. One was Hugo Dyson, the other J.R.R. Tolkien. They ended up talking till four in the morning. Twelve days later, Lewis wrote lifelong friend Arthur Greaves, quote, I have just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ, in Christianity. I will try to explain this another time. My long night talk with Dyson and Tolkien had a good deal to do with it, unquote. We're now going to watch a reenactment of that talk. For dramatic simplicity, Dyson is edited out, so it's just between Lewis and Tolkien, but it does convey the gist of the conversation. Tolkien helping Lewis process the stunning fact that the perfect myth is literally true. By the way, Lewis always went by Jack, and his nickname for Tolkien was Toller's. So while officially it's J.R.R. Tolkien talking to C.S. Lewis, practically this is Toller's talking with Jack. I think is rather ridiculous. After all, the magic of myths or fairy stories is not an end in itself. It exists to serve virtue. And satisfies certain primordial human desires. But myths are fiction. The stories they tell aren't true. They're lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. They're just beautiful lies. You, you can't seriously believe in fairy tales. Why not? I can, in fact, I do. <laughs> but this is preposterous. How can you seriously believe a lie? Oh, Jack, myths are not lies. In fact, they are the very opposite of a lie. Myths convey the essential truth, the primal reality of life itself. Go on. Well, you see, we have been duped into using the word myth as being synonymous with a lie because we have been duped into accepting the first real lie of materialism. And what is that? That is the hideous claim that there is no supernatural order to the universe. The materialists have imprisoned us in a world of mere matter, of, of physical facts, divorced from and devoid of metaphysical truth. Well, I say that they are lying. I say that they are the ones who have come up with a false myth. 
Their world doesn't exist. It's merely a figment of their imagination. Well, fine. However, there's a problem. The problem is they have convinced us that it is true. They have made us believe that this is all there is. Three dimensions, five senses, four walls. Isn't it? Most emphatically not. Jack, the four walls of materialism are the four walls of a prison. And the materialists are our jailers. Don't you see? They've put us in a prison. A prison of four walls. They don't want us to see what's beyond those walls. They don't want us to discover what what lies outside their narrow philosophy. Worse than that, they think that any attempt to escape from the prison is an act of treason. Well, wouldn't it be an act of treason against rationality to believe otherwise? Now, Jack, think for a moment. How can it be wrong for a prisoner to think of things that exist other than walls or jailers? Doesn't the fact that the prisoner is able to to think of things outside the walls suggest that perhaps things do exist outside the walls? After all, if the prison really is all there is, how are we able to picture things that exist beyond the prison? And this is where myths come in, you see. Myths exist outside the prison. Myths allow us to escape from the prison. Or if we are not able to escape, at the very least they allow us to catch a a fleeting but also powerful glimpse of the beauty that lies beyond the walls. But what is it that we're meant to be glimpsing? Well, don't you see the truth, Jack? Myths show us a fleeting glimpse of truth itself. Truth. Truth. What on earth is this truth that you're talking about? Ah. Quid est veritas? What is truth? I'm glad to see that you've entered into the spirit of the myth, Jack. You've just cast yourself into the role of pilot. Pilot? Oh, I see. You're able to believe in the lesser myths because you've already accepted the big one. Once you accept the big myth, the lie of Christ, it's easy to accept the smaller ones. All right, Tolas, I'll play the role of pilot. I wash my hands of the whole nonsense. Well, Jack, you may be able to wash your hands, but your mind is still muddied. You're not thinking clearly at all, old chap. You're acting as if myths are mere arbitrary inventions of fiction, as if we pull them out of thin air. But what you don't understand is that we make things by the law in which we are made. We create because we are created. Creativity. Imagination is God's imageness in us. We tell stories because God is a storyteller. In fact, he is the storyteller. We tell our stories with words. He tells his story with history. The facts of history are his words and providence is his storyline. Are you suggesting that 
all of history, that everything around us is all part of some divine myth. We are all part of his story. This very conversation is part of his story. But perhaps it isn't his story. Perhaps it's only your story. How can you know that your story, the story that you believe, the Christian story, is any more real than the other story? But don't you see, it isn't my story. It's his story. You're acting as if Christianity is one myth among many. It's not. It's the true myth. Christianity really happened. Jesus really existed. So did Pilate. And yet it is this true story that makes sense of all the other stories. It is the archetype. It is the story in which all the other stories have their source. And the story to which all the other stories point, it has everything. It has catastrophe and its opposite. What we might call eucatastrophe. It has the joy of the happy ending. The sudden joyous turn in the story that is essential to all myths. It has to a sublime degree this, this joy of deliverance, this, this evangelium, this fleeting glimpse of the real joy to which all other joys are but a distant echo. Tell us, what did you mean by catastrophe and you catastrophe? Well, for example, it has the catastrophe of the fall and the you catastrophe of the uh, redemption. It has the catastrophe of the crucifixion and the you catastrophe of the resurrection. It has everything man's heart desires because it is being told by the one who is the fulfillment of desire itself. It is a story that begins and ends in joy. But just because a story brings joy, it doesn't necessarily follow that it's true. There are many joyful myths. They all seem rather flimsy to me and bring rather false. And yet this story has the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. Perhaps it's just a very well-written artifice. This story has the supremely convincing tone of primary art. Not fiction, but of creation. And to reject this leads either to darkness or to wrath. And in my own life, it has led me from darkness to light. Astonishing. Told us you astonished me. You absolutely astonish me. <clears throat> okay, so there's a realistic portrayal of how C.S. Lewis got around a corner. The problem, uh, Dr. Peterson, in light of your affirmation of the perfect myth being literally true, but that's not a corner most of us need to get around because most of us aren't soaked in this archetypic, mythic worldview. Most of us think in terms of what we'd call real life and encounter the Gospels as assertions about real life and decide in a straightforward manner whether we believe them or not. Simple enough. 
And this applies to everything in the story, from water into wine to the resurrection. However, the anchor of the story, the linchpin, is the resurrection. Consider, for example, the possibility that Jesus didn't really turn water into wine. It's a misunderstanding or a joke. Just for the sake of argument, imagine that miracle did not happen. If he rose from the dead, that wouldn't matter. It'd just be an amusing little glitch we'd chuckle about. Now flip that around. Imagine he did change water into wine, but did not rise from the dead. You see how that brings the whole thing down like a house of cards? Water into wine and the resurrection are the same in that they're both supernatural assertions about reality, but they are different in that water into wine and all the other miracles are tangential. But the resurrection is essential. The gospel, the New Testament, the kingdom of God, everything stands or falls with the resurrection, the literal, physical resurrection. Now we're going to watch a clip of Jordan Peterson being asked about the resurrection. And I understand if you just drop in on this, he may sound like he's from Mars. The way he speaks and the terms in which he speaks take a little getting used to. I hope I have set the table well enough for you to see He's coming from essentially the same perspective Lewis was, dealing with the surprising question of whether what is to him an archetypically perfect story, to Lewis a mythically perfect story, same difference either way, whether this symbolically perfect story is literally true. This is Jordan Peterson being interviewed by Patrick Coffin, February 2018, and you'll see the question is framed in terms of that discussion that Tolkien had with Lewis. Uh, Dr. Peterson, in light of your affirmation of the archetypal significance of the resurrection, you have expressed some ambivalence about its historical reality. J.R.R. Tolkien had long conversations in Oxford with C.S. Lewis in which Tolkien helped Lewis to understand that the story of Christ was the first archetypal myth that is not just true in a mythopoetic and psychological sense, but also true in the historical sense. That insight, helped by the grace of God, pushed Lewis over and he became a Christian. Where are you in, the, in this discernment process on the historical uh, nature of Christ, and the, especially the resurrection? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Like, I do believe that there are places where the mythological and the literal touch. Mm-hmm. I mentioned one of those earlier, the idea that spoken truth, logos, yep. creates habitable order out of chaos. I think that is literally and metaphorically true. I don't think you can you can state the nature of being and the role that consciousness plays in it more accurately than that. And so it's metaphysically true, it's religiously true, and it's literally true all at the same time. And so there are times when that happens, and I don't know. See, this is the mystery to me, I would say. I understand what that means. I understand that there are times when the literal and the metaphysical or religious co-occur. And I can understand... So that the literal is the foundation upon which the symbolic or the... Yeah, it's like the way I've been conceptualizing it is it's Mm -hmm. as if the material reaches up towards the spiritual and the spiritual reaches down towards the material and now and then they touch. And that's a miracle when that happens. Mm -hmm. It's a miracle when that happens. And I do think that happens. Um with regards to the resurrection, 
my my apart from saying what I just said, I would say that I need to think about that for about three more years before I would even venture an an answer beyond what I've already given. Mm-hmm. It, because there's very much there that I don't understand as well as I need to understand. Part of the reason, I, I did a biblical series last year, yeah. and I got through Genesis. I, I thought I would get farther than that, but that isn't what happened, and I'm going to do Exodus next, and I'm going to walk through the biblical stories, and I hope I can get through all of them, although I yeah. don't know if I'll live long enough to do that. But I want to spend the same amount of energy on the story of the Christian passion as I have with those other lectures Mm -hmm. to investigate exactly this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Because I know there's way more to that story that that is available for analysis that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand what it means symbolically. I understand what the dying and resurrecting God means. It means something like you pick up your cross, you voluntarily accept your suffering, you open yourself humbly to the correction of the world, parts of you continually die as a consequence, all mm-hmm. the parts of you that need to be updated by exposure to truth and wisdom, mm-hmm. and it's painful. You have to identify with the part of you that can be reborn continually through those micro-deaths. Okay, so so that's the archetypal pattern. Yeah. Well, the Christian claim is there's something going on that transcends that mere archetypal pattern, or that it manifested itself in reality ultimately once. You know, and that was a claim that Jung was, Carl Jung was actually quite, what would you say, um, sympathetic to. But I don't, I don't know enough about it to say anything more than what I've said psychologically. Yeah. And so I want to know more about it. Wow. I think he's sincere. <clears throat> and so we're going to close with some things I'd like to say to him. Things I think you ought to grapple with in this process. Let's take our bearings in summary. I have said that as I understand him, Jordan Peterson embraces the metaphorical, archetypical, symbolic meaning of Christianity, including, but not limited to, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, as I understand him, he believes that holds, counts, remains effective even if not literally true, even if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead. And I could not disagree with him more on that point. I contend it's a package deal, and everything in the package stands or falls with the resurrection. You got a resurrection, it's all on. Goodness, truth, beauty, faith, hope, love, onward and upward, forever and ever, amen, if he rose from the dead. But if he did not, if you got no resurrection, it's all off. Got nothing for you. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Right now I'm trying to accurately identify the point of contention, and to do that we have to honor Jordan Peterson by listening to him, hearing what he says, and understanding him on his terms. Rule number 10 of the 12 rules is be precise in your speech. And he follows his own rules. He's very careful, very particular about what he says. So we're going to pay close attention. 
We're not playing gotcha. We're not trying to trap him by his words or twist their meaning. I just want to get as clear as I can about where he is so I can articulate the difference between where he is and where I want him to be, where I think he ought to be in relation to Jesus. He said, I do believe that there are places where the mythological and the literal touch. The way I've been conceptualizing it is, it's as if the material reaches up towards the spiritual and the spiritual reaches down towards the material and now and then they touch. And that's a miracle when that happens and I do think that happens. Do you believe in miracles? Jordan Peterson does. And that's huge. Remember what Tolkien was saying to Lewis about materialism, three dimensions, five senses, four walls, four walls are a prison. Jordan Peterson's already done the jailbreak. He's already busted out of the materialist prison. He believes in a higher spiritual reality that not only transcends material reality, but also interacts with it, touches it miraculously. That's huge. Now, of course, it doesn't speak to whether he accepts this or that particular miracle. It doesn't mean he believes the resurrection occurred. It does mean he believes it's possible. He's already around a really big corner. He says he understands the resurrection, what the resurrection means symbolically, and I'm sure he does. He probably understands it symbolically better than I do. Tell you something I know. He sure understands the story of Cain and Abel better than I do. I have hardly begun to scratch the surface of his understanding of that. But we've got to stay on topic. We're zeroing in on the one thing it appears to me he does not understand. But before addressing that, we've got to acknowledge the equally significant thing he does understand. He understands the issue. He understands what the question is. And that may be the biggest step of all. Here's how he put it. The Christian claim is there's something going on that transcends that mere archetypical pattern or that it manifested itself in reality ultimately once. The archetypical pattern is the dying and resurrecting God, not dying and resurrecting man, dying and resurrecting God. And the Christian claim is that it manifested itself in reality ultimately once. Bravo, Dr. Peterson. Rem aku tetagisti. You have touched it with the point of a needle. You are exactly right. That is the claim. The archetypical pattern of the dying and resurrecting God manifested in reality in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. I have carefully reflected on what I'd say to you about this claim if I had the opportunity. You should know that I have the utmost respect for you. Your courage and insight have made my life better, and therefore the lives of those around me better. And you know that is happening in the lives of people all over the world. God is using you to do a great work. And I want to leave you with a word from Jesus and a few thoughts. The word from Jesus is in John chapter 15, verse 16. There, speaking to his disciples, he said, 
You did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I understand what you mean about the material reaching up and the spiritual reaching down. There's certainly validity in that image. But the more time you spend in the New Testament, the less you'll focus on the material reaching up and the more you'll focus on the spiritual reaching down because that's the message. That's the story. The gospel isn't about us meeting God halfway. It's about him reaching down, coming down, all the way down. The Logos, Dr. Peterson, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. John chapter 1, verse 14. And he didn't stop there. He submitted to death. We're in Philippians chapter 2 now. Even death on the cross. And he kept going down, down to the grave, all the way down to Hades, the abode of the dead. Funny thing. Did you know he gave a lecture there? Preach to the spirits, 1 Peter 3. Then he busted out took the keys with him when he left. Revelation 1.18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. That's why the resurrection's essential, Dr. Peterson. None of the other victories matter if you can't beat death. Now, I've said a lot already, and a lot more could be said, and maybe you really do need three years to sort it out. I'd certainly enjoy a three-hour discussion with you about the three-year plan. But I'm standing in front of people preaching the gospel on Easter morning, and I don't have three years or three hours. I've got to land this plane in three minutes. So here's what I'd like to say to you about the resurrection. (coughs) Frankly, Dr. Peterson, I think you're already hooked. I think it's all over but the shouting, and I'll tell you why. I have it on good authority that you should tell the truth, or at least not lie. That's rule eight. And I think you're an exceptionally truthful person. And the truth is, you understand the central claim of Christianity, that the archetypical pattern of the dying and resurrecting God manifested itself in reality once. That is the claim. I'm not saying you believe that. I'm just saying you understand that is it. And here's the deal. Once you understand that, you must either accept or reject it. There's nothing else you can do. And one of those two things you must do. By pursuing the matter this far, you have, so to speak, stepped into a trap. And I know all about that trap, Dr. Peterson, because I stepped into it 40 years ago. Let me tell you how it works. You're a reasonably good person, interested in truth, enlightenment, God, and so on. You're searching around here and there, and you pick up the scent. You begin to follow the trail. And it's fascinating. It's exhilarating. You're really making progress. You actually seem to be closing in on it or him, so you're pressing on. Then something on the periphery catches your attention, and you look up and look around and discover to your horror that it's looking suspiciously like the Jesus thing. Christianity in whatever stereotypic form repulses you, so you stop and you begin to back up. 
speaking aloud as if your retreat needed to be covered, speaking aloud, saying things like, this is really fascinating, and I'm so glad to have seen this, and I'm going to go give this, backing up, backing up, I'm going to go give this very serious consideration, backing up, because I can see it's wonderful and life-changing. Then you turn to make a break for the exit, only to discover it's not there. That's the joke, Dr. Peterson. That's the trap. You can't go backward. You can only go forward. Having come to know what the central claim of Christianity is, you cannot unknow that. You can only proceed to accept or reject it. On a personal note, I'd advise skipping over entirely or at least minimizing the phase where you try to kick yourself in the butt for realizing this. It's a complete waste of time. It can't be done, and it wouldn't change anything if it could. So there you are, Dr. Peterson, faced with the claim. We could say, quite biblically, faced with the Logos, whom you must now either embrace or turn from. I suppose it must be possible, having seen the central claim of Christianity, to reject it, but I'm glad I couldn't imagine how, and I don't think you'll be able to either, Dr. Peterson. So there you have it. That's what I'd like to say to you about the resurrection. Thanks for listening, and with sincerest wishes for God's blessings on you and yours, Permit me to say, even if slightly prematurely, welcome aboard, Dr. Peterson. Happy Easter. He is risen.